I trust you've all noted Dukkha Vedana, arise. <laughs> I trust you've all noted the onset of reactivity <laughs> upon the inception of Dukkha Vedana. So we're right on topic then. This is the phase in uh, the retreat where the pursuit and avoidance pattern that set in upon the experience of pleasant or unpleasant, of comfortable or uh, discomfortable sensations are in the fore of our mind. Um, Chris was very kind this morning and has uh, tried to break the bad news gently to you. Um, as you will be aware, this is not really talked about very much in Western psychology. It doesn't have the prominence. There is an acknowledgement of um, hedonic phenomena in our experience and how big they are. But the kind of the radicalness in which Buddhist psychology um, addresses this is, is hard to match. This is really a very powerful teaching and it refers to a rather shortish segment in our experience. So one of the Vedana are from their structure not difficult to recognize. A, they don't talk that much. They just say things like, ooh, or ooh, yeah? <laughs> so they, this is that little spike, which if we are not, if we have not learned to identify that little spiking of our pleasure meter, uh, then we are usually much more aware of the ensuing process, which is the pleasure bit is usually um, followed by liking, which is technically already a different stage of this experience. Then it is followed by being interested. Then it is followed by having a good mood, experiencing an emotional state that uh, is akin to happiness or delight or uh, elation or exuberance or uh, yeah, falling in love. Yeah, So we keep falling in love and out of love. This, um, according to neurophysiology, there are hedonic hotspots in our brain, which we are uh, which making us particularly susceptible to the experience of pleasurable things, interesting things, fascinating things, things that incite our lust, things that incite our, um, basically that hit our uh, gratification centers. So we have hedonic hotspots. Unfortunately, we also have hedonic potholes, which do the opposite. And if we have not learned to identify the pleasurable or the displeasurable element as it arises, we are very likely to be preoccupied with the ensuing process. So we either go like, joy, and then pursuit, and then we engage in some volitional ways, ways in which uh, deepen our habit energies, or we go the other way, dislike, aversion, rejection, pushing away, or 
you know, teeth gritting resentment or so if we can't push it away if it's so dominant. It's important to acknowledge that Vedana are not volitional. They are not things we have a choice about. You cannot choose whether you experience something as pleasant or as unpleasant as you experience it. They're neither moral nor are they intentional. You have a lot of say what you do about this experience, but you have no say whether you experience this as pleasant. Some of the things we experience as pleasant are um, have to do with conditioning. Yeah? Whether you have a predilection for grunge rock or Bartrox drink water is largely a question of conditioning. Some of them have to do with just having a human body who in a certain temperature range seems to feel more at ease than if it goes way above or way below that. Some of them are almost visceral. Yeah? If I have this little, this sweet little cushion, and if I just scratch my fingers across it, this is likely to produce a Vedana in some of you. And you don't have a say about this as it happens. So Vedana has something as immediate as that. Sometimes Vedanas are coming in a sequence. You may find something pleasurable initially, and then you may become aware that this does not accord with your moral values, and then then you may feel an unpleasant Vedana of being embarrassed about being pleased by something you feel you shouldn't be pleased. Or, yeah, so you get sequences, you get layering of Vedana. All of these Vedana are generally relatively rapid, they are short-lived, and yet they are very, very important. We rate them as the flavor of things. Chris said it this morning very beautifully. If you look at our behavior, ultimately what we want is good Vedana. Even if we want the things from which we hope that they would give us the Vedana, It's actually not the thing we want. It's the feeling the thing gives us. Often we identify the Vedana with the object that has given rise to that Vedana. And we find ourselves disappointed if the very same object doesn't do the Vedana we expected it to give anymore. If the cookies at the bottom end of your box, after you've eaten the top half, somehow don't quite hit the spot anymore in the way they did. Even if you look at human behavior, it's very obvious that we seek in a fairly consistent way to maximize pleasant hedonic tone and to strategize against unpleasant hedonic tone. How we go about this, we may differ quite a bit, you know. Well, for some people, ice climbing may be a real fascinating sport. Other people find the thought of hanging out there and hacking away with their ice tools in uh, below zero temperatures really unpleasant. But for some people, this may be very stimulating. Other people may think lying in a deck chair and reading their favorite novel may give them the very same pleasant vedonic tone, even at the mere thought of it, you know. So while these activities may look quite different, in practice they are actually both concerned with obtaining 
what we could call the flavor of experience. You know, often the Vedana is the flavor of our experience. One way to practice with this in a formal setting is um, whenever you experience a shift, so when you hear a bell, uh, a gong, when you go from one room to the other room, when something happens in a change of light, any contrast is a good opportunity to acknowledge the feeling tone, the hedonic tone of this. Is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? Chris did this example of stroking your hand with this. This is a very good example. It's also very mild. There are things that don't hold a lot of pleasure. Usually we are inclined to up the volume on, on Vedana. So depending on how loud the volume you are used to in your life, you may find the pleasant Vedana of an in-breath rather undramatic. You know? It's a little bit... Um, if you like green tea and you wish to appreciate green tea, you, you may have to give up your mentholized lozenges because the same taste buds that help you appreciate green tea and refine your appreciation for green tea are blunted by heavily mentholized lozenges, for example. So you may have a hedonic conflict here. If you want refinement, you need to let go of some things. But meditation is similar. While breathing may sound a really boring pastime to pay attention to, if you do that for a while, the mind will become sensitized and you may find it exquisitely pleasant to just sit here being breathed and feel the buoyancy of the energetic in-breath enlivening your, your whole posture and just feel the incredible, subtle exquisiteness of, of your breathing. Yeah. This can be a fantastic experience when you're here sitting and the movement of breath is stroking your inner organs you know, in a gentle, soothing rhythm. Depending on the threshold we are used to, this may take some time bef before we can appreciate subtly pleasant stuff. Now, one of the encouragements in meditation practice is learning to identify the subtly pleasant stuff. This is the Niramisa Sukha Chris was talking of this morning, the unworldly type of pleasant feeling. So, this is a type of feeling that is so-called blameless. It is a pleasantness that is helpful for the mind to become more still. Now, this is a magic thing, and this is a very helpful thing. Because the mind likes the pleasant, meditation makes use of this predilection of the mind for pleasant things by identifying pleasant aspects of meditative experience, and thereby inducing the mind to become more refined, more tranquilized, and more appreciative. Yeah. So the very habit of pleasant seeking, uh, of pursuit and avoidance, as Chris called it this morning, is m we're making use of in inducting the mind to become more calm and more still. Not in the sense of uh, forceful concentration, but in the sense of a unified citta, yeah? a unified mind that is coalescing. The image for Samadhi is the image of water. It's the coalescing forces, the forces that unify the mental functioning. 
think of drops of water in a vessel. These, these drops of water will not sit each in a corner and say, I don't have anything to do with the guy over there. Yeah, they will, they will kind of coalesce, they will merge. Yeah, this, th I've forgot what the technical term for this is, but the surface tension of water is always so that it is inclusive. Yeah. This is what samadhi does. Yeah. This is not something we do with our will. This is something that just happens to be in the nature of mind. If we do not disturb that mind with sensory impingement, if we do not uh, allow the mind to be dispersed in discursive activities. That takes a moment of exercise, but once that starts going, it's actually very, very pleasurable. Delightfully, un in an unworldly way, pleasurable. It's a great happiness. Um, there's three reasons why meditative stillness is of value, is rated valuable in, in Buddhist teachings. The first reason is it's healing. It experience allows you to experience a sense of wholeness, intactness, integrity, togetherness. You're no longer deficient. You're no longer fragmented. You're no longer uh, distracted and uh, and at the mercy of centrifugal forces. You know, you kind of your life becomes a life in one piece, in one cast. So it's an immensely blissful and deeply healing experience. The second reason often overlooked why meditative stillness is appreciated is because it is intrinsically blissful and because it is blissful you have actually for the first time a chance to compare the bliss and the gratification that comes from sensory experience with the bliss and the gratification that comes from meditative experience. Unless you have meditative stillness to the degree that you that this is a true alternative for your sensory gratification, you will always default to the sensory one because that's the only one you know. Yeah. So in many ways the experience of samadhi offers you for the first time an alternative to a happiness that comes from food social contact, owning things, seeing things, tasting things, touching things, um, listening to things, and so forth, smelling things, and so forth. Yeah? The third reason is easy understood. The uh, human mind has, without going into big detail, has basic three basic functions. One of them is um, sensitivity on a very basic level. Uh, on another level, it's producing uh, volitional formations in response to the sense experience you have. So, in other words, it builds reactiveness or responsiveness to your sensory experience. Yeah. And the third level is it understands things. It's capable of understanding things. Now, its capacity to understand things dramatically increases insofar as it is less preoccupied with the first two layers. Okay? The less you have to process sense impingement, the less you have to react to the sense impingement with wishes, wants, choices, decisions, discernments, the less you have to do of this, the more the mind has a capacity to actually be understanding. Yeah? 
So, the third reason why samadhi ex- uh, experiences is, are powerful is because they clear the mind and they heighten the mind's capacity to understand things. Not in a sort of intellectual, inferential way, but it's a, an understanding that, has, that comes from immediate seeing or immediate knowing. It's a type of knowing that is incontrovertible. It's a knowing that we do not need arguments anymore. It's a knowing like when we're groping around in the dark and somebody puts on light and we realize where things are. It's It's that sudden. So this knowing is the type of knowing that is liberating the heart from its empirical misunderstandings, from its bad habits and from its... Um, inaccurate perceptions. This knowing is deemed to be highly uh, transformative and precious. So how to come at this knowing is by allowing the mind to become still enough that the clarity of that knowing can take a bigger space. It's very simple, isn't it? The less this mind is whipped up, the less it is preoccupied with processing sense data or processing reactions upon sense data, the more it is capable to deepen into that knowing faculty that is its its other big function. Now, you don't need to do this. This is already there. This is already in place. Your mind is already capable of that. You know, you're not deficient of this. You may think you have never known anything, which I think would be an exaggeration. But this is already there. Yeah. As soon as the mind becomes more calm, is less in caught up in the pursuit of pleasant stuff and in the avoidance of unpleasant stuff, the deeper its knowing powers become. So identifying Vedana in the sequence of reactiveness in our patterning is a very good and useful type of knowledge because it helps us identify the cutoff point of things. You see, while it is normal that things I deem to be pleasant incite in me the wish that they continue, that I can have them, eat them, own them, marry them, drive them, <laughs> whatever, whatever, yeah. There is no law in the universe that says I have to respond to something pleasant with that impulse. It is possible to experience pleasantness without such an impulse or without following such an impulse. The same is true for unpleasant Vedana. It is quite possible that I can experience unpleasant Vedana without either being afraid or unnerved or aversive or looking to blame some responsible creature who has um, triggered this on Dukkha Vedana. So there is no law in the universe, although it seems habitually very normal that that things that are unpleasant get on my nerves or start to become the object of my aversion. Actually, if I catch a Vedana and if my mindfulness is big enough, it is quite possible that the Vedana arises, spikes and ceases. And end of story. I don't need to be on the carousel. This isn't just some 
Buddhist fairy dream, as Chris has very aptly pointed out this morning, um, reactive cogitation upon ordinary low mood (laughs) feeds on negative Vedana. Negative Vedana feed uh, negative thought patterns. Negative thought patterns instill negative emotional patterns. Negative emotional patterns begin to be som- somatized. Yeah, you start hunch and make start looking like your dog and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, there is a great freedom to be gained by just being able to identify pleasant and unpleasant stimuli because they trigger us. And once we know that they trigger us we can learn to be more precise and put the finger in the fault line where Vedana stops before reactiveness or an emotional pattern sets in. You know, this is therapeutically powerful stuff. Yeah. So, for today and also some of tomorrow, I would like you to do a little exercise with me. This is not a guided meditation. The exercise consists of just asking four, uh, four little, or maybe two little questions. Yeah. Whenever you find your mind now drifting away from your declared exercise, say breath, being with your anchor, posture, metta, Whatever your declared exercises in the course of a day, I hope you do shift, emphasize. Um, uh, you shift your emphasize according to our instructions. Whenever you find your mind straying away, I would like you to ask two questions. Is what you find your mind preoccupied with, is that pleasant or is it unpleasant? No analysis. You just want to scratch statistic, Okay. You don't need to investigate, examine, um, just scratch the pleasant, unpleasant. You want to know, is it mental or physical? Physical is everything in your five outer senses. Any, everything that you, anything that you can hear, taste, touch, smell or see would be a physical event. It touches your five outer sensory organs. And if it is mental, then it means it comes without outer stimuli. It comes from inside your mind as a memory, as a fantasy, as a mental image, as a thought, as a concept, as a name. Um, Maybe you're more original. Maybe you have auditive memories or so. Whatever, something your mind produces would be the mental part. So... Tomorrow evening, you want to have a good long list of scratches uh, that will tell you that whatever distracts you is predominantly mental or predominantly physical, and that is predominantly pleasant or predominantly unpleasant. Okay? No analysis, no big examination. If you cannot identify whether it is mildly pleasant or mildly unpleasant, do not worry. There will be plenty more to come. Do also not try to figure out whether the thing you had 15 minutes ago was pleasant or unpleasant. Let's just, you know, for the gods. Yeah? You're not, there's no shortage on Vedana. As long as you're alive, you know, there will be plenty of Vedana. Right now you will be having Vedanas. Be prepared to lower your threshold. You know. uh, Vedanas don't just begin at the level of orgasmic intensity. You know, you'd be willing to 
lower your, your, your bar a bit, just mildly pleasant, like the stroking of your hand, or mildly unpleasant, like maybe a sound or a sight. Or If in the day you go about practicing, just notice whenever your mind kind of does this kind of, oh, hmm, yeah. Notice when this happens. When your Vedana starts to talk too much and starts to make full sentence and preoccupied with syntax, it's probably not Vedana anymore. It's probably you're probably somewhere on channel four. Yeah? So then it just humbly go back to feeling your breath, feeling your body and returning to practicing stillness, deepening, allowing yourself to rest and deepen in stillness. I think it was Chris who pointed this out. You know, samadhi practice begins with seeking ease and creating ease for yourself. It doesn't mean nothing's going to hurt, but it's mean, it's like in yoga. You create comfort within discomfort. You go to a place where it may not be perfect, but then you learn to find a niche in there where you can breathe into, where you can be easeful. In yeah. You can be easeful within imperfect conditions. That's where samadhi practice begins, learning to create that kind of ease in any situation. It doesn't have to be still so that you can be in touch with stillness. It doesn't have to be empty so that you can be in touch with emptiness. It doesn't have to be pain-free so that you can be in touch with your intactness and your wholeness. Good, let us practice.
Good, please take a stretch. Uh, this is the time for mindful movement or walking practice or continue sitting in here. Um, you'll be with Chris today, so please make use of this opportunity and we'll meet again for the 6.30 sitting. <coughs>